So I'm here this morning with Joachim Le Pen, or as uh, we will refer to him throughout the podcast, Joe for short. And uh, Joe goes by both, so I'm not making that name up for, for everyone watching. Joe, welcome to the show and thank you very much uh, for joining me. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. We've been working together for many years and uh, great to actually have an opportunity to have our audience listen a bit to, to your life story, your career, but also some of the tips that you have to share. Thank you, Gary. Well, thank you so much for having me on. It's an absolute honor. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to talk shop. So let's go. Let's do it. All right. So Joe, if uh, what I'd love to hear a little bit from you is a little bit about who Joe is, um, sort of uh, where you were born, raised a little bit of your personal story. I find people really help sure. connect once they get to know people's upbringing and, and how they came about to be who they are today. Absolutely. Well, um, I hope you'll reciprocate because I'd like to know a little bit more about you. We've had a lot of professional conversations, but uh, I suppose the first time we'll sort of go into our personal background. I was born in Belgium, but um, my dad is a Parisian. My mom is from Belgium and they moved to the U.S. shortly after I was born. So I, my dad was teaching uh, French at different universities, but he had part-time positions. So we moved around a lot when I was younger. I ended up growing up in California, Texas, Philadelphia, uh, New York, and New Hampshire. And then that was sort of interspersed with trips to Europe. So I was very sort of international growing up. My parents spoke to me and my two brothers in French, and we answered in English because we were doing all, all our schooling in English. It's always a little bit tricky when people ask me what my native language is, because technically, I, I think I spoke French first. But then growing up, I went to school in English. So later I learned the term dominant language. So that's what I use now. My dominant language is English. Sort of like my right hand when I'm writing. It's like the, 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 main, the main language. Um, but uh, French is also sort of hardwired into me, both in terms of language and culture from my parents. And uh, long story short, I grew up in all different states. The longest place I ever lived in the U.S. was Philadelphia. I lived outside Philadelphia in Haverford, on Haverford College, actually while my dad was teaching there. And uh, so I, that's where I went to school for eight years on the main line. I ended up, uh, we ended up moving up to New Hampshire. And when it was time to go off to college, I was considering all different universities in New England. My parents said, hey, you speak French fluently. Have you considered Quebec? And I thought, Quebec, what's that? <laughs> I've never heard of Quebec. What is that? Like, I think the only image I had in my mind of Quebec was like cows or something. Like, I think they do dairy up there. Anyway, um, but I, I did end up applying to a few colleges in Quebec, and I'm so glad that I did. I ended up studying at Concordia University, did my first degree in music up there. Uh, then I, moved, I ended up moving back to New Hampshire and teaching music for a bit. Uh, and then I moved back to Quebec to be with my future wife, went back to school. At that time, I was also earning my master's in the U.S. because I knew I wanted to teach in some capacity. That's something I've always loved. And when I moved back to Quebec, essentially, uh, I really hit a wall in all kinds of ways. I couldn't teach high school because even though I, by that time, I had a master's degree in education, um, foreign degrees are not recognized in Quebec in, in many ways. And um, so I couldn't teach high school. And I knew I wanted to teach in some capacity. I knew I loved explaining things and talking to people and coming up with ways of helping people do things. That's just sort of who I am. It's, it's, it's just part of my DNA. And when I moved up here, I realized I could not uh, teach high school. So I went back to school 
to get a degree in music education, but I would have had to go back to school for five years. And after that first year, I was just, I had no idea anymore what I was doing. You know, I had a master's in education. I had experience leading an entire um, middle and high school music program as a director for years. But moving back to Quebec, I couldn't really do any of those things. So I just felt like, what am I doing? And at the same time, I had this nagging sense that maybe teaching music, as much as I loved it, maybe it wasn't quite right, that there, there was something else for me. I just had that, I don't know, an inner sense or knowing. And I happened to take a translation course to improve my French, which, uh, you know, in retrospect, it's not really the best way to improve your um I guess, how could I put it? It's not necessarily how you learn a language. Translation is an art in itself, of course, as you well know. But at that time, I was just looking to improve my French and to understand cultural differences between French and English. And almost from the first class, I just I just knew it was just like, boom, this is it. I'm home now. You know, I just knew this is what I wanted to do. I, I just loved, especially comparative stylistics. That was the first class I ever took with a wonderful teacher called Shirley Fortier. I just fell in love with uh, translation and the differences between um, English and French, not just linguistically, but from a cultural standpoint. It's like all these things I had been living in my life. I was kind of finding a name for them and exploring them and just loved it. So I knew very early on when I went back to school that this is what I wanted to do. And then after I created my translation business, and the rest is sort of is history. Uh, I ended up doing more and more teaching. I taught university courses myself. So I taught those courses that I loved in, uh, in university. I ended up teaching comparative stylistics and into English translation and other courses. I did that for close to 15 years. And uh, last year I decided to uh, sort of focus more on the training that I'm doing with uh, professional development. So right now I'm really focused on professional development. I'm taking a, I can't really say a sabbatical, but I'm taking a year off from university instruction to create the courses that are within me, that I want to create, that are already there in, in me, just need to be sort of created. And I have, uh, I have maybe 12 or 15 workshops I've created so far, but I have a long list of more workshops and there are books I want to write. There's just so much more that I want to do at this point. Um, so anyway, that's probably way past the question you were asking, <laughs> just like blowing past like no, but Joe, it, it is years very interesting and, and helps put things into perspective. I, and I will get uh, to to some more questions around the sort of the career path. Uh, but just uh, while mm -hmm. we're on the personal side, uh, who would you say was the most important person to help shape who you are today? Oh, that's such a wonderful question. I'm so glad you asked that. I think one person who had a profound uh, effect on me has nothing to do with translation, actually, but it was in music school. I had a trumpet teacher, Mike Cartile, who's just a fabulous, unbelievable um, classical and jazz trumpet player. In fact, he does all the different styles. And um, so I studied with him. I, I had uh, private lessons with him for a couple of years. And I also played next to him. So in, in big band, he would play the lead chair and I would try to play the lead chair with him. <laughs> um, but studying with him, he's someone who had a very, very high level of excellence. You know, this is like world-class quality. And just being next to someone who's world-class for several years, you start to absorb some of that you know, and it's true what they say that the people you surround yourself with have a profound impact on who you become and what you choose to do. Um, in the case of Mike, I think uh, he's someone who's very 
he was, so, you know, what's interesting is he was someone who was world-class and dedicated to excellence, but he was also an incredibly kind person and also someone who knew how to set boundaries and who, who expected the best of you. He was kind of like a coach in the very best sense of the word, word, like you, I guess I realized with Mike that you can have both. You can have like a very, very high bar in terms of what you expect from yourself and other people, but you can also be very kind about it and very gentle about it. Um, but you don't lower that bar for anyone or anything. And that's, I think that the most valuable thing I learned from him is that, you, you know, it's possible to, to, to really strive for excellence in your life without kind of being a jerk about it, you know, or having it be an ego thing at all. It's really just about competing with yourself. And so I think my cartile taught me a lot of personal values that I still try to, to emulate in many, many respects. And another person that uh, impacted me profoundly, I would say is Shirley Fortier. So the one, the teacher who taught that first comparative stylistics course that I took, just because she's such a, um, such an intelligent person and such, so, so good with words. It's just like, she's just this, um, incredibly eloquent and, um, I guess I'm, I'm trying to find the words. It's really hard to put into words, which is ironic here, but I guess when you're, sometimes you're exposed to someone who just has a way with words and you realize what's possible. It's like, wow, just listen to that person speak and what they're doing with their voice and with language. And you see all, all the students in the class, their eyes are just all lit up because her teaching is so fantastic and she knows her stuff so well, but beyond just knowledge, it's about all the different things that she's doing to create connection with the students. And, um, anyhow, I was just blown away by the quality of her teaching and, uh, she's no longer teaching translation. I think she's now working for the ministry of education or something or immigration, but anyway, um, she's just a fabulous teacher. So she was, and she helped me also find my way in translation and figure out what I wanted to do. So she had a, a deep impact in terms of, um, I guess I just absorbed as much as I could from her <laughs> because she's just a, such an excellent, excellent, excellent teacher. And then, uh, yeah, a lot of wonderful personal qualities as well. So in a nutshell, those are two people that have had a profound impact on me. Thank you, Joe. And, and I love the stories about some of these intellectuals and, and, uh, people that sometimes it's hard for us to come in our day-to-day -day life and, uh, uh, that are in, in sort of the small sectors of, or seemingly small sectors of, of our day to day, but that have such a huge impact. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Joe, so uh, I, you know, the, you've touched on music a couple of times uh, so far. So tell me a bit more about uh, how music has affected your life and, and how important music is to you, because uh, the, the sort of how music has played in, uh, I'm getting a sense that it's been important, but I don't, I don't know the full background. Right, definitely. Well, I, I did my first degree in music and then I taught music and then I came back to Quebec. And uh, then my career path changed for all different kinds of reasons. Like I mentioned earlier, I hit a wall and then concurrently I happened to take a class that helped me sort of really find what felt right to me. So I'm, I'm no longer in the music world per se. I'm not a performing musician, but I do feel that uh, music imparts lots of valuable lessons, especially studying music. One of them that's been pointed out in music education, for example, it's often um, cited by music teachers is that, you know, if you take a math class and you get an 80% or an 85%, that's considered great. But if you play trumpet in a, an orchestra, 
and you get 85 or even 90% of the notes right, how great is that? You know, you're out of the band. <laughs> um, and so music requires a very high standard just because of the nature of um, what's expected of a performer. And I think trumpet in particular, because if you play a loud wrong note, everyone's going to know it. In fact, I remember I played a production, I think it was a Guys and Dolls production I did. I was playing for a theater way back in the day. And the very last note in the show I got wrong. <laughs> it was like, boo-doo, 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 boo-doo. And I was supposed to hit boop. And I hit boo-doo, 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 And it just like completely went off, off. And I was like, oh, I felt horrible about it for days. But that's what music does. If you want to play at a high level, you, you really have to hold yourself to an incredibly high standard, much higher than we usually hold ourselves to for almost any area of life. So I think that's part of why so many musicians become translators. It's like they're already sort of perfectionistic. They're already expecting a lot from themselves. And then perhaps the other component. So we know, for example, that kids that study music or that are very involved in music classes tend to do much better in school because they they end up naturally starting to hold themselves to a higher standard. Um, but the other piece, I think, is that the musicality um, you know, musicality also finds its way into your texts. And if you want your text to sound good, then you have to have a sense of what sounds good. And you can study grammar, you can study syntax, and I recommend everyone do those things. But at the end of the day, you also have to build your own sense of style. And essentially that comes from doing a lot of reading, reading quality materials in your native language, written by native speakers. And so I think there's a, a very strong connection there also in terms of the musicality of language. And if you if you really are musical in your translations and they're pleasing to the ear, you your clients will notice that. They really will. They'll, they'll perk up and notice. Um, I was translating a, a speech yesterday for a mayor and it's like, I do a lot of those kinds of jobs because I really infuse my translations with a sense of flow. I try to make them musical, try to make them enjoyable to read or to speak. Um, I don't always hit that goal, but I strive really, um, I strive hard to get there. And uh, if you do that and you are able to hit the mark at least a good percentage of the time, I think that you start to attract the right kinds of clients. So it's it's served me extremely well. Joe, uh, there's uh, that was loaded with tips. Uh, the the last question because. Uh, now I'm going to have to tell our internal recruiter, you have to look with people with the musical background because knowing the perfection of the, <laughs> and I never thought about it that way. It's interesting. We have a drama that has a master's in clarinet that is uh, in charge of our AI support for the team. And, and uh, you can see Wonderful. that sit through that level of excellence. And I, I never really made the connection, but now it all, uh, it all makes a lot of sense because he had gone through something similar where you're, you know, you're, you are in a setting where, you can't screw it up. And that's, uh, alas, here we are. Uh, Absolutely. And actually, I've, I've since learned there are many translators who are musicians or who have a musical background. But sometimes you, you don't realize it till you ask around and it's like, oh, yeah, you know, I have a master's in clarinet or you know, I've been playing saxophone for 20 years. Or there are actually a lot of people who who have uh, some kind of musical interests who are, who are in our field. You know, it'll be it'll be now part of one of the interview questions, knowing uh, what it really means behind the scenes. There you go. <laughs> well, in, in a way, it's it's like athletes that were high performance athletes, right? Like you're competing with yourself. You're trying to get better. Right. Um, and similar, similar rationale. Um, Joe. Absolutely. There's definitely a connection there. Yeah. 
I know you have been teaching for a while now, and I know in, in the early stages, um, and I'm sure to, uh, with an ongoing on an ongoing basis, you have found challenges in teaching. How did you overcome them, and how did they make you better and, and bring you to sort of the 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 instructor extraordinaire that you are today? I don't know about instructor extraordinaire, but definitely I've learned many lessons just because I've been teaching for. I think 20 years now, certainly there are many things I've learned. I think one of the first teaching gigs I had was teaching high school, like I mentioned earlier. And one thing that taught me that was kind of a difficult but necessary lesson is responsibility. You know, like you'll see some people write about how they had a time in their life that something happened that taught them that, you know, you're, you're, you have to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And so when you're the director of a big music program, you quickly learn that you have to be resourceful. You have to own up, you know, you have to own up whatever the outcome is, good or bad, whatever's going on, you have to take full responsibility. And you also, I've, I've seen this a lot with college students that I've had where you can tell that there's a moment where they've realized there's no one to clean up their, their messes. There's no one that's going to do their work for them. There's no, you know, many students at the beginning of their studies, they're sort of like, they're tagging along. And then this moment happens, maybe they fail a big test or something happens or they have a trial in their life. And then you see that there's something that's shifted and it's like, they're sitting up a little bit straighter and they're realizing, Hey, I'm, I'm in the driver's seat now. It's up to me. If I want to make, if I want to have a great um, academic career, then I've got to put in the time I've got to put in the hard work. It's sort of the same thing happened with me when I was teaching after those first couple of years, I realized, Hey, um, it's up to me to make things happen. It's up to me to push, push past my own comfort zone. Sometimes it's up to me to take the classes and improve and learn and acknowledge when there are things that I'm not doing very well. Um, so for me, I think definitely teaching high school, it's, it's really hard. First of all, teaching high school is, is not really about the subject matter. That's very, it's almost irrelevant. You know, you could almost teach any subject in high school. It's much more about how you work with teenagers and your connection with them and being able to set boundaries and things like that. Um, so that was a, a very important lesson about sort of taking, taking full responsibility for my life, taking responsibility for my outcomes. That's something that stayed with me. So later on, like, you know, many, many years later, when I'm creating a course, I kind of put myself in that mindset, like it's up to me. You know what I mean? There, there's, there's no magic Wizard of Oz that's that's going to make this happen. If I want this to be a great course, it's up to me to read a pile of books. It's up to me to take classes myself so that I, I learn about my blind spots and then I can answer difficult questions when I'm teaching. And sort of that mentality, like, it's up to me. It's my responsibility. Whether something goes well or doesn't go well, I've I own that. You know what I mean? And there are things I've done that have failed. I've done some workshops that didn't work. Um, I've taught some classes that I wasn't particularly proud of. But then I have others that went super well because I, I kind of reviewed the tapes, you know, like Michael Jordan. I know it's kind of an older reference. You can see my, my, my references are a little dated. But like Michael Jordan, one of the things that he's often said is that he did not have superior ability compared to other athletes. And in fact, he was really bad at basketball when he started and almost quit. But he would sit down after his games and literally review the tapes, like what went well, what did not go well, what do I need to improve for next time? And while the other players were going out and drinking beer and celebrating their victories, he was analyzing like 
what what do I need to improve for the next time around? What can I be proud of? Both, you know, not just being tough on yourself, but also celebrating the wins, but doing it in a methodical way. And he was one of the first athletes to really teach the rest of athletes that mentality of like, let's go over the tapes and just sort of clinically examine what's going gone on. And I've very much taken that mentality with me with my translations. So, um, you know, I've tried to really learn from every job I've done. And same thing with teaching. I, I try to get feedback and I try to be open to what people are saying and say, hey, you know, if two or three people said something could be improved, there's probably something there that needs to be improved. So that's been fundamental to me, sort of that um, approach that I try to take in all areas of my life. Like after something happens, whether it's good or bad, let's sit down and go over those tapes. <laughs> but the tapes is the incremental improvements, right, Joe? It's uh, no matter what area exactly. we're in, it's, it's, there's always ways we can get better and nothing better exactly. than sort of critically reviewing your own work. That's exactly right. And also learning to do it dispassionately and even with a sense of humor, you know, it's not about like getting down on yourself and making sure everything is perfect next time. And I'll, they'll never catch me making that mistake again. It's like, it's just sort of um, a way of sort of coming back to what I was saying earlier, like I am competing, but I'm only competing with myself. And it's sort of a, it's a positive thing when you get into this mindset. And, and it's a very healthy mindset, Joe, because competing with yourself is, is, uh, is the best way, frankly, to do it. Uh, you incremental getting better. It's not about certainly other people have their own uh, improvement path, but you focusing on yourself and improving for yourself is probably the most important piece. Uh, so, Joe, I'm just, right. uh, along the same lines, uh, the tell us a little bit about Traduction Lyon and what led to you uh, starting it and starting your own translation company. And and I don't want to call it exclusive translation company because it's much more than that now with with all your uh, teaching and instruction that comes from it. But tell us a bit more about all that it entails. Sure. Well, when I went back to school to study translation, I already had two degrees um, or I was finishing up my master's. So I was a little bit older than the other students. I was starting over and I think it was just I, I knew very early. I, I kind of already knew myself a little bit. I wasn't 20 years old anymore. And I, I just kind of knew if I'm going into translation, I'm going to create my own business. Like I, I it was just I just knew that's how I wanted to do it. Definitely, I would have my work revised. Um, but I didn't plan to work for an agency, for example, or for the government. Um, I just had this sense. I remember a teacher even asking us one time in class, like, "Here, who here plans to create their own company or be a freelancer? And I think I was the only one that raised my hand. But I just, I, it was like instant, like, boom, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> um, and so when I graduated, I did end up creating my own uh, company, Traduction Lyon. And uh, the idea at that time was really to focus on translation. Um, over time, it has evolved quite a bit. Now I hire other translators frequently. I also let other hire, other translators hire me. I work on larger projects. So I don't like to think of myself as a freelancer anymore. Um, in fact, I never really liked that designation. I like to think I'm a business owner and entrepreneur uh, because that's that's sort of more in keeping with how I see what I do. I'm very collaborative. I work with other people. So I have my, my business, but I'm very open to working with other people. And I, I like doing larger projects that require multiple translators. So that ends up working well. 
Over the years, I started teaching translation more and more. And I first, I split my company in two in 2019 to make it, it was still called Traduction Lyon, but the logo changed. So it was Lyon Formation Traduction. So training came before translation. And now in 2023, I have my translation business, but I have a separate um Academy, Lion Translation Academy, which I've co-founded with Anne-Marie Boulanger, really amazing literary and medical translator of all things. And so I've, I've sort of had to learn to adapt in different ways as I've grown. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Growth is very interesting. Like as your company grows in various ways, it raises all sorts of new challenges that you never thought you'd have to face that you can't really predict. And so all these new these new questions require answers. And uh, I think it's a good thing. It requires you to continually grow and have to consult people who have been added a little bit longer who might have advice for you. But that's sort of where, uh, that's the direction I've, I've been going in. And, no, and Joe, it's a, it's a very interesting direction and something that certainly the industry needed. Um, I'm going to focus a bit more on the instruction and the teaching part of it. Uh, you, mm -hmm. You've been doing that now, like you said, for, for 20 years in, in different capacities. Uh, what is, I know this is hard when you've done it for that long, but if you were to pick like the most memorable experience uh, from, from that course of the 20 years, what would you say that is? Right. That's a, that's, that's a tricky question. It's hard to pinpoint a single moment. I think one, and could, you, sort could, of a you could have more than one. I, moment. I, I will provide that. Uh, okay. I will allow it if you need it. <laughs> awesome. I think one thing that's always struck me a whole lot in my classrooms, teaching translation specifically, is that very often I'll, I'll give a text to students and they'll wrestle with that text and they'll really struggle in all kinds of ways. It doesn't really matter if they're Francophones or Anglophones, they'll have different problems and if, issues with that text. But the really interesting thing is when there have, there's been something that almost always, almost everyone stumbled on in class, I, I sort of found a little technique that I, that I tried out one day just sort of for fun, sort of off the cuff. And then after I sort of built it into my courses because it was so, it worked so well. And so I love to share this. Um, it's still useful to me today, which is I'll, when students are struggling with something, I'll let them struggle a little bit. And think, you know, if they, if they have a tricky term, for example, or a sentence that they, can't, they just can't figure out how to cast that sentence so that the meaning gets across and it's sort of good writing, right? So I'll let them struggle with it a little bit. I won't give them sort of a, an answer or a suggested solution right away. I'll let them struggle. Then I'll say, okay, I, I feel like we've been working on this long enough. Now I want you to, I'm going to take five minutes. I'm going to give you a breather. I want you to take a break and let's just completely forget about translation. Let's forget that you're in a classroom. I'm just going to give you some free time. And I want you to turn to the person next to you and simply tell them what this text is about and explain sort of the gist of what, 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 what you're translating and what this sentence is trying to say. And then during that time, just like let students have a snack and relax and whatever. And I love to kind of go around the room and listen in. Let me tell you, Gary, I have heard some stupendously, amazingly, ridiculously good translations that I hadn't thought of, that I never would have thought of just from walking around the class and listening in, sort of sneakily listening in to what students are saying. Because I find that, that when they get into that um sort of that mode of like, oh, what are they trying to say here? And how would I just like, 
how am I going to just explain this to the person next to me? Then everything starts to flow. All those awkward structures fall away. And very often with just a little bit of minor tweaking, you can come up with unbelievably uh, crisp, compelling, concise, beautiful translations that are like years and years and years and years ahead of what these students ever produce in their assignments. So it's been interesting to see that sort of sometimes as translators, I feel like the most, the best thing we can do is to stop thinking as translators and translating and just sort of stepping away and just like, oh, you know, try saying out loud what the, what the text is about with no pressure, just forget that you're translating. And very often I find you sort of get to the meat of the sentence or the paragraph, what the author is actually trying to say. And then you start actually thinking the way a translator should, you know, which is, um, I have a message, you know, Jean de Lille famously said that translating is understanding in order to help other people understand. And I feel like that one simple exercise really gets you in the right mindset and even the right mood, like that low pressure, let's just get the message across kind of mood. And uh, it's always been very striking to me that even with students in their first year, they've often come up with translations that blew me away when, when we did this exercise. So I try to find ways to work that into uh, my workshops in, in different ways. Um, another good one, you know, again, sort of the same idea is in my workshops. I try to bring down the tension. I feel like a lot of workshops that I've done, the instructor will give a really, really, really difficult challenge, like an unbelievably difficult sentence that even a very experienced translator would, you know, struggle with terribly. And they'll say like, okay, if anyone has a translation, this was before COVID, right? Like, can you stand up and say your translation? And then someone would stand up and then the whole class would critique it. And it's like, that doesn't always produce great outcomes <laughs> because it, it puts, it makes the tension just really too high. And I feel like that's, you know, when I do my best work, I'm relaxed and happy and in a good mood. And I feel like in my workshops, I try to make things relaxed. That's why I, I encourage people to use the chat as their thought stream and not censor themselves. I also tell people, you can just write your answer to me and I'll read it to the class without telling your name because I want to get people relaxed. I find that when we're only when we relax, can we tap into that creativity that we already have inside of us. But um, a lot of education, it's kind of a roundabout answer to your question, but I feel like a lot of education is too tense. And often we do our best work when we, A, struggle with something, because you do have to put in that hard sort of cerebral work, but then B, kind of let go and relax and talk to people or find a creative venue to let those ideas kind of um, take shape. So I don't, it's not really a specific anecdote about the classroom, but I feel like if you can, if you can be very, if you can find a way to get people very relaxed and having fun and enjoying themselves, but also be really engaged, then sometimes they'll come up with amazing translations. And I think that's something we can all learn to do. It's definitely a skill that you can also hone even as a solo translator, right? It's all about sort of the mindset. And Joe, I really hope some uh, non-translators listen to the podcast as well, because I think it's what you were saying can really give a true appreciation for the for the craft of translation and how much goes into it. And it's not just, you know, get me this 500 words by tomorrow, because, you know, sort of often it's driven by business. Right. Needs. But there's so much more to it to really get something that has that flow and, and just so, so critical. Um, by the same token, it is uh, it would be inspiring to to translators that are or 
people that are really considering translation as a career, uh, the, the craft of it, um, just fascinating. In fact, when I write to translators mm-hmm. and I receive emails from them, I'm always cautious because, you know, business uh, communications are often a bit sterile and, and stale uh, compared to what translators come up with. So whenever I write to translators, I have to think mm-hmm. longer about how I draft my emails or correspondence because I know that's probably the demographic that will judge them the harshest being masters of the craft. Right. They are very critical. There's no, all of us translators tend to be very critical. Most of us are sort of perfectionistic. I like to think perfectionism is good to a point. And then there's a point of diminishing returns and you have to learn to let go, but you do have to have that high bar, um, you know, when I put out marketing materials for our academy, I've had typos, for example, and people like, get a swarm of emails from translators like, you know, this is unacceptable. You had a typo and like on page five of your blog or something. And it's like, they're really, really critical and they're really hard on you. But, um, but I think that sort of comes with the territory where critical readers, you know, it's funny. Another great thing that Shirley Fortier once talked about in class that has stuck with me is she was saying... She also had taught writing, okay? She taught creative writing at different levels. I think it's CJEP or something. And she was saying that it's actually much easier to write than to translate. And when I heard that, I thought, oh, you know, is that really true? And then she kind of explained it. And it, it kind of makes sense the way she, she said it. She was saying, essentially, a writer, and I know this from, you know, I'm currently writing on my, my own book right now. It, as a writer, if you can't figure out how to say something, you just say something else right? That's what all writers do. You just say something else and then you come back to the idea later. No problem. Uh, And that's just considered part of writing. But with translation, you don't have that latitude. You always have to get the exact idea across and with the right tone and with good style. And there's a whole list basically of criteria that you have to meet. That's incredibly difficult. And there's very little wiggle room. You know, there's no place to hide really when you're a translator. You have to get it right. Um, and, uh, And so, you don't you you can't just change what the author said if if you can't figure out how to say it. You really have to figure out exactly what they meant and get it across. So it's it's a very, very demanding kind of work translating any kind of text, I think. Um, perhaps different types of translation have different types of challenges. You know, literary is very different different from technical, for example. But fundamentally, you know, you still, you have to be faithful to the source text. I know it's a loaded word, but you have to be faithful in many, many different respects and you you can't really just say something else. So translation is very, very hard work, no doubt about it. And I always tell students, think in terms of years, you know, you can see some students think they're, they're going to get the hang of it in a few weeks or a few months, and it doesn't happen. You know, it just doesn't happen for anyone. It takes a number of years to learn the right um, sort of mindset to get into. And that's true, whether you're a translator or interpreter, you know, some caveats and differences, but it's, it does take years to learn. It's very, very demanding works. No, no question about it. I think it's a, that 10,000 hour rule, Joe, you, you can't f- squeeze 10,000 hours in, in a few weeks, uh, just to, to really master something right. that average. So, uh, there's no way around the hard work. Let's just put it that way in, in a society where, Sometimes we we are used to quicker results than we are used to. That is something that putting in the time we have to understand. Uh, Joe, I'm sure absolutely. I I would even say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't want to cut you no, no, off. No, no, I'll go, just go end ahead, really quickly. Quick <laughs> thing I wanted to say, you know, you were talking about athletes earlier, and it's interesting. I, I read a wonderful book um, last year by uh, I think it was 
David Goggins, like a Navy SEAL. He was talking about his experience and he, he had like um, both of his legs broken and he was still running like one of his, um, one of his trainings. And anyway, it's a mind blowing book. I'll, I'll have to find the title, but David Goggins, if you look him up, he has, he has another book out now. But one of the things he says is that at a high level, like if you want to get beyond just okay, and you really want to strive for excellence in any field says, actually you go a step further. You have to kind of like embrace the suck you know, <laughs> embrace the pain. I know it's not a fun thing. It's not a popular idea. It's much easier to sort of get into a very consumer society, pop in Netflix in the evening, get on your phone when you're waiting in line. But the, I, the high level performers uh, not only are willing to put in that grunt work, like you said, but they embrace it. You know, like this is, this is me time. Yes. You know, high level performers are, they love going to the gym. They do, they love doing the reps. And it's kind of the same thing with great translators, I find. Like they're, they're willing to put in the hard work, to have their work revised by people better than them. And it, it takes a lot of humility and a lot of heart to do it. But I think that's where the best, the, that's how most of the best translators operate. And Joe, not dissimilarly, uh, Jim Collins in the book, Good to Great, uh, sort of one of the leading business books out there that a lot of the, is recommended mm -hmm. in a lot of the business circles. He says the the worst enemy of uh, great is good because when when you're good you don't push yourself sometimes right. great. but that incremental piece so and, and he used in the context of companies that do well and you know continue to survive challenges in the future is the ones that push themselves consistent to evolve right uh, despite things being good in the short term Not I really love how you're 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 stressing this incremental part because I think that's equally important, like no big leaps, you know, it's good to do things very slowly. And even in terms of like my teaching and building up the self-confidence, sometimes I speak to hundreds of people, but I didn't start there. I started with having one private student and then I taught a small class and then maybe Joe, would you be willing to have 10 students? Okay. I'll, I'll work up to 10 students. And then, you know, like you have, to, you do have to gradually expand beyond your current ability, but at the same time, it's not good to take sudden leaps also partly because if you do fall flat on your face and things go poorly, it can be really hard to recover and get the mojo you had before. So I'm definitely a believer. I, I love what you're saying about sort of, yes, constantly pushing past your comfort zone, but doing it in a very like incremental way, small baby steps taken over time. That's a, a wonderful piece of advice. Uh, Joe, I, uh, I love this train of thought. I think it'll be beneficial to a lot of our listeners, but um, on a slightly different note, just all the learnings with all the experience you have so far in the field of translation, how do you see the field evolving uh, and the, the profession of translators, uh, knowing how important this craft is um, and with technology playing a part in it and, and well beyond technology, how do you see the industry evolving? Right. It's a good question. I, it, I'm not sure uh, we can say with any certainty where things are going, but, but we can look at trends. You know, the technology will continue to improve. Uh, there will be more uh, engines, neural machine translation engines that come out that uh, also there's still a lot of improvement, a lot of room for improvement in terms of uh, building domain specific engines and uh, even client specific engines. So I think NMT will continue to evolve. And uh, um, another thing that I'd, I'd love to get into, if we have a little bit of time, we could also talk about OpenAI and ChatGTP and sort of what what that's going to do. But fundamentally, I, I think that 
translators will always have a role to play. I will say, though, I always recommend that you know, any aspiring translator have at least one specialization, like a real hard specialization. There should be an in-depth field that you know well, that requires serious expertise in that subject matter. I think becoming being a generalist is increasingly kind of, I don't want to say dangerous, that's over overstating it, but it's not necessarily very prudent to be a generalist in today's market with improving engines. Um, but the more you can specialize, you know, you can continue to do very well for yourself. And I think that will still be the case for a long time to come. In terms of specific evolutions, I think, you know, we're looking at uh, all these different uh, text writing um, uh, engines out there and, and things. I was actually playing around with one yesterday. I, I, uh, I bought a lifetime deal to um, for Hello Scribe. So I was playing around with it yesterday just to see what happens. And so they have all these different buttons. And these, I don't know if you're familiar with these technologies, but if, essentially they work with prompts. So write me a text about such and such topic and make sure to hit this point and that point, whatever. And um, the text that these engines produce is shockingly good. You know, it really is shockingly good. It's well-written stuff. You know, I'm saying that and I teach syntax and like, it's, it's like the flow is really good. I was really shocked by what this, uh, what the engine was able to put out. It gives you many different alternatives. I suspect that the prompts will be developed. I think there's still a lot of room for improvement with the prompts. I can see a world, you know, not to scare anyone, but I can sort of envision a world where you could have prompts to create a text in one language and use the same prompts in another language so that uh, you'll kind of obviate the need for translation where you'll have parallel text creation in different languages. I think that's one thing that that is uh, that's not so futuristic that we should count it out. I think maybe within a five-year horizon, we can expect to have um, no longer transcreation, but simply parallel creation of texts as the prompts improve. And imagine if an engine is able to, like, let's say the author puts a series of prompts into AI and then they make some tweaks and changes. Well, there's, there's nothing to say that those tweaks and changes can't be taken into account in the other language through a series of prompts. So I could see parallel text creation becoming the next trend. I think, again, um, we shouldn't run for the hills and start to panic. Uh, there's more content out there than ever before, but my personally, and I'm sure that you can relate and people listening can relate, your clients hire you for your human touch. And if a text is worth translating professionally, usually it's because it's written by a human and has that human touch and that uniqueness or many little subtleties. You know, even thinking about what I've, I've been translating recently, like an academic regulations for university, there are standard things in there, but there's a lot of, there are a lot of like very unique things to the university. There's the language of that university. There's how they talk about community and whatever they use in, in French, um, solidarité or whatever. So I think that translators will continue to have an important role, but we should be aware that, you know, technologies will continue to improve and we will have to continue to, um, make sure we know our stuff and that our, we have to showcase our value to our clients. But that's always been the case. You know, people have always said, why would I hire a professional translator? And then tra translators explain it. And then the client goes, oh yeah, okay. That makes sense now. And that's, I think that's just going to continue in the future. There's no, there's no sign that's going to abate. I think it's going to intensify. We have to be, it's up to us, you know, talking about personal responsibility. It's up to us now in 2023 to showcase our value you know, I think many, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you here, and I'm including myself, but many of us translators have been able to coast just by doing good work. 
if you do a good job, the clients will come eventually come to your door. I don't think that's going to cut it in future years. I think we're going to have to raise the bar and look at what other professions are doing to showcase their value. And we're going to have to learn to do some of those things too. Like an architect using AutoCAD, how are they advertising that? Um, a radiologist using the latest diagnosing AI software, how are they presenting that to clients? I think we need to get on board with like, we're not alone, we're not an exception to the rule. We're like all the other liberal professions and we need to start looking at what they're doing and taking a serious stance so that we can show our value to our clients. And if we do that, I think we have a great future ahead because what we do is super important. But if we coast and we just say, well, I just do my work, I hand in my text and that's it. I think that might still be okay for a handful of years, but in with the future that's coming with all these powerful, robust tools that are increasingly able to do a lot of different things better and better, we're going to have to be able to explain what we do a little bit better to our clients because currently I don't think that we're doing a stellar job with that. And Joe, so packed with insights, uh, this last uh, this last answer. So uh, there's a really a lot to dissect, and I really like the parallel text creation. Also, the advice of highly specializing in an area. I mean, it's you can never take away from the value of somebody that can say with to truly understand the subject matter and then ultimately reflect that in the translation. Because one of the biggest failures with AI is that, you know, it's based on data that is out there and, and uh, the higher the quality of the data, it's you can get a better product. But there's imperfections by, by nature and by probability because not everything that is found in the data sets is, is always accurate. So a highly specialized translator right. with that craft really mastered can always add value, can always make sure that there is something that the end user, the client, gets uh, gets that sense of comfort that this is as close to perfect as you can get. Uh, and perfection in this being almost like trying to reach for infinity. Perfection in translation is always, uh, uh, again, I'm preaching right. the choir here, but it's you're always aiming for it, but is it ever achievable? Um, and Joe... Uh, Absolutely, the, I couldn't agree more. The other thing that is extremely interesting is what you said, uh, there will always be this need for the human touch. And... and it's interesting because, as you know, we, we run a, an AI division of our of our company, and honestly, the biggest value add is great technology is only part of it. Uh, it's it's actually mm -hmm. how we work with clients to train them on on uh, making the most of it. So it's all about the human touch. So here you are selling technology, but then it's how do you actually train the clients to make the most of it and really. So where the biggest value add has come in, in my opinion, is in that human touch of implementation of effective right. implementation, really getting them to do it. So it's like, oh, so much for great technology. Here we are hands on, you know, for uh, really to do it. But that's the value add. And, and when we think of, of um, sort of as a recommendation to people, it's like there's all these nuances that are arising that didn't even exist before. Uh, so all kinds of new opportunities that I think uh, to, to anyone sort of open-minded to, to willing to pursue different areas, they are emerging very quickly. Absolutely. And I think that one way that we can we can do this better, um, and I know that you guys already do this because um, Alexa Translations AI, you guys are very forward looking. I was really impressed with everything that you're doing. Um, but I think that one thing that relatively few of us do in the field is simply meet with our clients. You know, I have a financial advisor. He comes to my house and he dresses like a financial advisor, like like a serious guy who knows his stuff. And he asked me how my family is doing. How's my, how's my dog? You know, and like, 
that stuff matters. It really matters. There's no one I would trade in, like in the world for this guy because he actually knows me and he cares about me and he knows my exact situation. He knows my exact needs. And if you think about it, it's the exact same thing with a translator, right? If a client has a good personal connection with their translator and they can hop on a Zoom call if any part of a text needs some work, that's worth its weight in gold. And that client will not change translators easily, you know? And there's also inertia that sets in. Once you have a good service provider, you're not going to switch unless there's a really, really, really good reason to do so. So you can also work on a high uh, customer retention if you, if you have that personal touch and that personal connection. I think that the... Frankly, the, the business model that I'm a translator, I have a Hotmail address, I submit texts that many translators are still using. I don't think that's going to cut it in the future. It's got to be, you know, when you get a quote request, first thing, it should just be a natural reflex. I'll be happy to meet with you to talk about your needs and to look at how I can best serve you. That's got to become like, you know, just, just automatic. You know, we need to be meeting with our clients and talking to them, asking about their family and their dog. <laughs> <laughs> we need to become a, a real partner that's helping them uh, with their text and help them strike a chord with their audience in a different language, different culture. Those are super important things, you know, but, uh, but the client is not going to see the value unless you build a real personal connection and they can kind of, uh, they're going to quickly realize everything they're getting out of the relationship and everything you're bringing to the table. So I'm big on meeting with clients at least the first time and maybe once in a while thereafter. I find that's been a total game changer for me. And I don't say this to brag because there are a lot of things I do very wrong. My wife could tell you I can't load a dishwasher worth crap. <laughs> there are a lot of everyday things I do very poorly. But one thing I do get right in my life is I land a lot of big, high-paying clients. I really do. And the way that I do it is I meet with them. I say, thank you. Thank you so much for your request. I'll be pleased to meet with you. Because a lot of clients, they'll write an email to five or 10 translators. Hey, I have a text to translate. I'm a first-time translation client. How much does it cost? And probably eight or nine out of those translators are just going to write back and say, this is what it costs. And that's it. But if you can say, I'll be happy to meet with you to understand what you really need, suddenly they're going to, list, they're going to sit up and pay attention because you're presenting yourself as a partner that's working with them to achieve their goals in the long term. Um, and that's just, it's going to outsell any translator, even if they're a much better translator. Frankly, if you have a good relationship and you bring value to your client in all kinds of ways, they will, they will understand that. So I think we need to move past that hotmail address and sending a text. No, uh, we need to maybe not go over to clients' houses like my financial advisor, but we should be meeting our clients on Zoom. We should be explaining all the different services we provide and how we can help them achieve their goals. Um, and building that relationship with them. I think that's, that's the next level if we want to preserve that human touch and have a, uh, a viable profession in the future. And Joe, uh, that's part of the reason why that's also great advice on, on another angle is think about where most issues in translation arise. It's often misunderstandings of the client's intentions or the background around it. And when you think about like how that actually, like that communication piece can bridge a lot of that in, in many ways. Um, and Im imagine totally. how much better that flow becomes. Conversely, for any listeners that are translation consumers, so business clients, etc., make the time to talk to your translators because that communication piece is just as important. So it's a two-way street. While translators reach out or offer to reach out, 
then you need to make sure you, you invest the time to really get the best product. There's no way around that both two-way communication. And I have that conversation all the time. Uh, and I hope uh, some mm -hmm. of the people that I have the conversation with do listen and do take that advice. So. Um, Definitely. Joe, uh, the, just uh, along the lines of, of the evolution of the industry, um, we're finding that in a lot of areas, it's hard to recruit translators. Not as many people um, are going into the field anymore, perhaps, or just the need mm -hmm. is growing quickly enough. We know statistically there's more translation being done. But is, do you find that right. perhaps there is uh, a shortage of, of uh, people going into the industry? And uh, what did you say to anyone considering going into the industry? Right. So for a long time, we were right at sort of parity. Uh, I know this because, I, you know, I was teaching college classes for a long time and we were just saying, OK, we're just sort of meeting the demand and things are fine. That was before COVID um, and the digitization of unbelievable volumes of texts on all different topics and service offerings and things like that. The demand has grown exponentially. No doubt about it. Uh, I do think also from everything I've heard, there are fewer people going into translation for different reasons. I think there's perhaps fear about the technology and how that's going to impact the future of translation. That might be playing a role. I also think that with COVID, you know, some we're not the only ones who have been hard hit, right? A lot of departments have been hit hard because I think there's sort of this fear factor that's set in. And it's like, if I'm going to go to university, I'm going to study a hard science or some, something where I know... Um, there's, there's going to be long-term work for me in that job after. And, uh, but it's unfortunate because there's, there's more work than ever in translation. And if you know what you're doing, you can make a great living as a translator. So that's one thing I would tell future people, you know, I think it's a great opportunity right now to jump in, uh, but, but learn a specialization, at least one, you know, and know your stuff. The other piece is if you if you are getting into translation, the number one piece of advice I would give anyone, have your work revised. There's no way around it. It goes back to what we were saying earlier. If you want real credibility, if you want real skills, then you've got to put in the grunt work. And in translation, that means translating and having your work revised by someone really good. There's no alternative to that. Not that I know of. You know, you can read all the books in the world. It's not going to translate into excellence, no pun intended, you really have to have your work revised. So I think the future, I mean, for people getting into the field, there's a bright future because there's tons of work. And if you know what you're doing, you have a great career ahead of you. I do think that from everything I've heard, there are fewer people getting into translation. So perhaps we have to do a little bit more work to explain that, you know, we're still going to be around in 10 years and 20 years that translators have a, have a wonderful future. So maybe we need to do a little more education. Also, again, I'm just laying it out right on the table. I'm just being honest with you here. I think that certain agencies are not offering good enough conditions. Um, and this is a much broader issue. I don't know how much we, we should get into this, but, you know, there are problems that agencies are facing today. Sometimes they have to bid on these huge translation contracts but then, you know, they're kind of told right off, right out the gate, like, if you don't price yourself low enough, you have zero chance. So they're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place, unfortunately. So sometimes the conditions they're able to offer are really not very good because they, they're responding to market pressures that are systemic and that can't be solved by one individual. These are things that we'll have to address at some point as a profession. There, there's a thing going on that has to be 
you know, we we need to look under that rock and talk about what's happening because there are there are some um, developments, I think, in terms of agencies and many of them mean well. You know, I have agency presidents in some of my training. They tell me, Joe, we agree about upholding professional conditions, but sometimes um, the, the difficulty of landing and securing this work is, is so hard that we we end up lowering our standards and just saying we'll do it for less. And then that ends up leading to problems. And then sometimes these agencies aren't able to offer great pay to their employees. And so they have a hard time finding people. Fundamentally, you can even offer all kinds of perks and um, benefits and so on. But if the salary is low, you're going to have a hard time finding employees, you know. And uh, so there's there's a piece there about how I think everyone from the individual freelancer to the multinational, we need to strive as much as we can to a show our value and be charged accordingly so that we can make sure people have good working conditions. Um, and I know that's easier said than done. It's a big challenge that we could just talk about that all day. But, uh, but I think that, you know, I'm just being honest. I think that some agencies are not offering good enough conditions currently to attract top talent or any talent in some cases. And it's a real problem. And Joe, uh, a lot of our followership is um, business people that are, are people in the business community that are making a lot of these decisions. And what I would tell them mm -hmm. uh, conversely is that don't push just on cost. If you really care about what you're putting out there and right. think of it as a requirement, it starts with you and that you need to set that standard. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it is a domino effect. You can't really blame the agencies past a certain point. They're trying to make a living. But if the, the demand exactly. from the business community is coming in a certain way is uh, either you're going to think about translation seriously and, and really invest in it properly and not just as a requirement um, that you're just trying to check off a box. Or if you are just thinking like that, then you have to be okay with you getting subpar quality because that's the end result of, of pushing the prices down so much. Uh, that, Absolutely. Wow. Those are words of wisdom. Yeah. Thank you for that. Well, it's it's. Uh, I spend enough time, uh, Joe, in, in some of these business circles, and and I try to do some of this education that a lot of translators don't. In a way that a lot of translators don't often have access directly, uh, and so I feel it's important right. that uh, that I play that role, uh, having uh, having the privilege of, of speaking with some of these people directly. Um, right. Absolutely. And it, I think it does come back to earlier. You know, we were talking about value and. Like you said, if it's just checking off a box, it's just checking off a box. But moving forward, I think it's going to become increasingly important to understand our own value and to find a way to communicate it effectively so that people understand it and that we're able to secure good conditions for translators. So that's um, it's a perennial problem, but I, I do feel like it's sort of been exacerbated by the pandemic and as volumes has risen have risen, I think, too, frankly, that there was around maybe 2017, 2018, as NMT started being used more and more widely, there, were, there was a sense that it was a panacea that it was going to solve everyone's problems and it's going to double output. I actually heard some higher ups in agencies saying, oh, well, we're now producing translations twice as fast. So, you know, and it's like, no, you can't produce translations twice as fast, at least not at a professional quality. That's not how AI works. It requires that human touch we were talking about. And um, realistic gains are, you know, usually they're around 15%, 20% if you, if you're doing really well. Uh, but it's important for us, us also to communicate to clients like, yeah, I'm using a technology that serves you well. 
the other thing that I try to stress in every talk I do is that we should tell um, our clients, regardless of who they are, how big they are, or how small, I'm using this technology. As a result, you're getting added value, which is a faster service. You're receiving your translation faster at no extra charge. What other field in what other industry today are you going to get added value and especially faster service in a very time sensitive industry like translation at zero extra charge? And then when you also factor in that translators and translation agencies have to invest in training and in the technology, it doesn't make sense to start slashing rates. It doesn't make sense for anyone. And ultimately, it will hurt the client as well, because if you keep slashing rates, you will not be able to hang on to the top talent that produce the quality translations. So I think we all have a, a vested interest in showcasing our true value and then charging accordingly. And um, I do think it can be done. I know that for me on an individual level, uh, there have times, there have been many times where I could have taken a big translation job and you know, the, the client said, well, I'm willing to hire you, but since this is a big job, I'll pay you less. Take it or leave it, Joe. And in those cases, what I've learned to do is say, thank you very much. Here's the name of two or three other people I'd recommend. That's not the kind of work that I do. You can check out my portfolio, you know, and then sometimes I'll send hyperlinks, for example, and say, hey, you can check out my work and see if the style resonates with you. But essentially, if we accept lower and lower conditions, then we will get lower and lower conditions, you know, so it is a domino effect and I'm not pointing fingers at anyone in this situation at all. It's just sort of a systemic thing where I think we can no longer just be a hotmail address. It's up to us now to, to showcase that value to business people and our clients. And, and uh, Joe, it's, uh, I'm going to go back to the comment I made earlier about incremental, even when you're implementing amazing, amazing technology, the gains are going to be incremental because the team itself is learning how to actually uh, use these tools effectively. Ultimately, translators still have to ensure a final product they're extremely happy with. The research has to go into all the aspects. Sometimes AI can That's right. produce something that reads well, but inherently may contain a mistake in context. And so a translator has to be really critical in it. So. As, even as translators uh, get used to it, there has to be a serious consideration around it. And uh, the advice I give to anyone mm -hmm. in technology is you have to think of this as sort of a three-year plan for and to truly give the, 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 to see the productivity that you'd want to see because it takes, it's everything is incremental. Those gains, to your point, 10%, 15%, mm -hmm. it has to be uh, as certain milestones are achieved, as people get used to it, as they get comfortable, as they give feedback back to the tool to the extent that's possible. But that's really how you make the most out of it. The expectation should not be that I invest in this tool, my team will be twice as fast by the end of the year, because everyone stands for disappointment or you're pushing transits to do something they're not comfortable. Exactly. So. Totally. And I think we're, we're starting to get past that discourse now. I think that was very, very prevalent in again, when that NMT started being adopted in the late 2010s. Today, I, I do see a shift. I think people are increasingly starting to realize that this isn't a miracle solution. NMT can speed things up, can speed up drafting, which is amazing and really worth it. Uh, it's worth investing in, it's worth learning. I think it's positive for the translator. You still have control over the translation. You, you still have ownership, it's your baby. You can even choose to use or not use a tool for a given job, but... Um, but yeah, the, the uh, yeah, I, I guess I'm just reiterating sort of your points there. It's all about showing that value. And 
um, yeah, and, and showing it the importance of our services. Joe, I, I know um, we're, we're keeping you past time, but I do have one more question. If, if you have a few more minutes for us, sure. Um, you've spent so much time in, in uh, translation and uh, all the learnings that uh, over time. What productivity tips would you share with any of the translation reviser, any linguistic uh, background listeners to this uh, to today's podcast? Sure. Are, are you talking about productivity in terms of how to be, how to perform, like how to produce more translations in less time? Is that sort of what you're what you're getting at there? Or and so that could be part of it, Joe. But I'm also thinking more how do you, how do you make your workflow better? How do you sort of make the most out of your day? So it, not just str strictly in volume, but rather um, productivity. That is. Here's what I found works well for me to also not feel miserable at the end of the day. So productivity in a healthy sense. As well. Right. Definitely. Oh, that's such a great question. I, I don't have a perfect work-life balance. I'm working on it every day. One thing that I've learned, though, that has helped me a lot, and maybe this is also because I'm past 40. So, you know, I guess there comes a point where you also realize you have limitations. I also have a young child. So you realize you have to take care of yourself. And I think that's been actually very beneficial. Realizing I have limits has been very beneficial to my translation because for a long time, I used to push push past the pain, just keep translating mentally. Okay, I'm mentally tired, but I'm gonna push past, get this job done on time. You know, um, I was just reading a book yesterday called The Gifts of Imperfection, where they talk about the same thing. Like a lot of people just push past uh, in their work day or whatever. Um, but in the long term, you realize that's not that's not where you do your best work, and it doesn't lead to feeling very good. So, like you said, you'll get to the end of the day and feel miserable. And I think, although it's not a language tip or anything like that, I find that giving yourself proper rest is really, really big. Uh, during my workday, I make sure now that I take a fifteen, a full fifteen minute break at least somewhere in my workday. Even if I have a very busy day with a lot of deadlines, I find I can still work that in somewhere, even if it's just after lunch. But I, I think what we let's recognize that the work that we do as translators is very mentally taxing, very very mentally taxing, because if you think about it, every time you 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 translate, every time you select a word over another word, for example, or choose a turn of phrase, you're making a decision, and there is a science of decision fatigue. You know, there are certain professions that suffer from decision fatigue. Doctors have decision fatigue. Judges have terrible decision fatigue and make different kinds of decisions later in the day. Uh, they tend to be tougher on parole sentencing later in the day. There have been studies done on that. So I think that we should recognize that we're very tired mentally. Most of us, most translators I know are, you know, suffer from mental fatigue and exhaustion and sort of getting depleted. So I think that we should recognize that decision fatigue may be one important factor in, in the fatigue most of us feel. Making all those decisions is tiring. To give you an example, a counterexample, my wife is a graphic designer and she doesn't make decisions all day. Part of her day she's making decisions, but at least half the day she's going through routines, like routine tasks that need to be completed. But they're essentially the same every time. You know, there's no heavy thinking involved to clean up a PowerPoint slide. You know what I mean? Whereas in translation, what we do is extremely mentally taxing. So if we don't take care of ourselves, we can burn out very quickly. Interpreters know this. That's why typically they won't interpret for more than half of any given day. 
But translators don't know this yet. And many translators expect too much of themselves, I think, and really believe they're going to put in eight hour day of translation. And it's like you're disappointed at the end of the day because you only got maybe three real hours of work done. Well, that's normal. That's normal. If you did three really good, high value, productive hours in your day, that's good. You know, any writer will tell you that's a good day. Three to four hours is the max for most human brains to do really demanding decision um, making kind of work. So that's just maybe one thing I'd say. Give yourself breaks in your day. Take a 15 minute breather at some point. Go outside, get some fresh air. Stop pushing past the pain to meet deadlines. Um, learn to give yourself that break. You're actually going to get more translated and it's going to be higher quality and you'll be in a better mood at the end of your day. So I know it's easier said than done, but it's so important to take good care of ourselves. And again, to look at other people, think about interpreters and the kinds of breaks they're taking. We need that. You know, we need those breaks. We need to take care of ourselves and our poor, frazzled and exhausted brains if we want to be able to function at a high level, especially over time, you know, in the long term. Joe, I really, really appreciate the insights you've shared with uh, me today. Uh, in fact, I had many more questions for you, and it just means we may have to do a non-core podcast. Uh, but <laughs> I, I want to, I, I'm, I'm conscientious and appreciative of your time. I think there's a lot of invaluable lessons here for any of our listeners. And I really appreciate you uh, making this time for us today. I think it'll be uh, very helpful to the entire translation community. And hopefully the business. Well, thank you so much, Gary. And yeah, wonderful. Yeah, well, wonderful. And and uh, I'm always very happy to collaborate with you. I'm a big fan of Alexa Translations AI and your initiatives. And you're doing a lot to raise the bar. You're doing a lot to showcase the value of uh, translation and not just within translation, but in the business community. So I'm, uh, yeah, keep, keep on trucking. I think it's what you're doing is wonderful. Thank you, Joe. Just working on those incremental improvements, uh, as we've said all along throughout this podcast. There you go. <laughs>